Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. When Elsa Mercado, played by Michelle Vientamilla, is released from prison after serving 16 years for killing her father, New York City Councilwoman Sandy James, played by Karen Pittman, and corporate attorney Paul Jenkins, played by Corey Stoll, are forced to grapple with their involvement in the original crime. What we do next is a timely emotional thriller sitting at the intersection of race, class, and criminal justice. Beautiful film, terrific drama from start to finish, and we're joined today by the writer and director of this wonderful film, Stephen Belber. Stephen, welcome back to Film School Radio. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here, honestly. Yeah. I just want to let our listeners know you were here for another wonderful drama called Match. Um, terrific pairing uh, in that film. And this has all of the elements of a great drama. Uh, a, an interesting, involved, intriguing backstory. Um, everyone in the film has a very interesting um, set of agenda agendas for themselves. And the actors are superb. Where did this project come from? What inspired you to make this film? Well, it was a play, and not surprisingly, that's not, I'm a, a playwright by by uh, nature. And um, I had it as a play, and then it, the pandemic hit, and I was scheduled to do a reading that became a Zoom reading with some uh, with a theater company, New York Stage and Film. And uh, Corey Stoll was cast to do that reading. And seeing it, it was very early Zoom, very early pandemic. And the it you know it was the intimacy of these actors trying to reach through this new screen creation of and trying to, to connect uh, really by instinct and it was incredibly more intimate than the readings I'd had of the play in my living room for example I'd had two or three prior to that and um, so I, I called Corey who I didn't really know I knew a little bit of, uh, I knew his wife and stuff but uh, and I was like would you consider attaching we just try to make this down and dirty during you know as soon as we're allowed. And he beautifully and nicely said, yeah. So we were able to, to raise a little money and do it, you know, pre-vaccine um, as a play. And, and because of those constraints and because of so much of our budget was going to COVID prevention, uh, I sort of doubled down on the claustrophobia of it. That in, that initial impulse that I, I had of, of people reaching across complicated situations to sort of connect and try to try their best to help one another in a world where that's really tricky or in a set of circumstances that's that's really tricky. It sort of came out of uh, my having been a substitute school teacher in Harlem, East Harlem, back in the back in the day, uh, back in the nineties uh, when I was first in New York, and teaching kids and and trying to very naively probably help them outside of the school. I was actually teaching a special ed class. I had no right to teach. I was substituting for someone who was out for the year. And I just made me think about when you're doing more harm than help and, and how the best intentions can screw things up. And And I always just thought about those days. I thought they there was a, there was a drama to be had there. So that's where this kind of came from. I want to talk a little bit about the production. You mentioned, uh, obviously, the, the challenge of filming during COVID. So in terms of allocating your resources, um, and I'm not, every director I'm sure is different in the way that they prepare for a film and the way that they go about the shooting schedule. But let's talk a little bit about what accommodations you needed to make, like pre-production. What were you like to get this thing set up and ready to hit the ground running, right? Yeah, we actually shot it in Louisville, even though it takes place in New York. 
because the producers were down there, the financiers, they had done a, a film there pre-pandemic. So there was an infrastructure they could call upon readily. And there were resources like hotels that were not being used that we could get for very cheap and create a bubble that where everyone, the crew, the actors, we all lived on three floors of a, of a fairly abandoned, otherwise abandoned hotel. And so we got down there uh, and we were able to rehearse there. We, re we rehearsed at the house of one of the producers. We rehearsed, we rehearsed on Zoom prior to convening in, in Louisville. And I knew that I wanted three actors with theater backgrounds because of its, not just because it was a play, but because I knew we needed to shoot 16 pages a day in some cases. Uh, we were shooting really a scene a day and it's a seven scene play. And we ended up with six and a half days. Wow. Um, so I knew that I could find actors just from my theater world who who could nail that. Karen Pittman, who I think is is, is extraordinary in the film, was someone who had done a, a reading of it also, not the same one as Corey, but I knew that Karen was someone I, I just was an absolute, uh, just a killer actor. Um, and Corey speaks for himself. And Michelle, I didn't know. Um, and I just, she self-taped and, and I was like, oh, that's that's how that gets done. She's amazing, I think. And they came in and they were all off book. And so we were able to shoot these extremely long, very talky scenes, but essentially run them almost at length and just with two cameras, just really shoot the hell out of them. And I am not a, by any stretch, a, uh, an accomplished or pro director. I didn't go to film school or anything, but I knew that from having done two previous films that the intimacy and the emotional drama and the emotional thriller that I was going for was going to come from this kind of uh, combat, verbal combat that I had been going for on the page. And if I could capture that, and more importantly, capture between the words, between the lines, the looks in the eyes and get up close. And I I sort of had an idea originally of kind of closing in a la Sidney Lumet in 12 Angry Men, closing in on the on the drama as the as it proceeded. But the performances were so immediately clearly good and excellent that I was just like, let's just get close ups for pretty much this whole thing and really double down on the beautiful acting that I was I was seeing in rehearsals. Yeah. So that was my whole philosophy. Well, I can see the the elements of a stage play in the film. It is very cinematic. And just as you described, uh, the framing, wonderful. I mean, we, I don't want to. I want to talk about them and the story, but the the the, the logistics of it, the the way that this film came together, is just it's it's really wonderful. And like a little bit about your cinematographer and working with him. Yeah, no, I'm glad that you say his name is Garrett Bradley, and he is a guy uh, who uh, is a reality TV. Really, that's his day job. He does. He, I think he did Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, the reboot on Netflix, and he was looking to cross over into narrative film. And he was available and willing to sort of come out. He had a you know set up a camera set up, and he and I just huddled and we looked at some. We looked at Bergman. We looked at uh, scenes from Marriage. I liked the starkness of some of those, the the, the close-ups of Liv Ullman, like all, all that. It, that's a drama that we sort of ripped off. We looked at other stage plays that had been adapted, obviously, and um, he was a lifesaver because I wouldn't have figured out how to do this with the, the economy needed. And the lighting and the, you know, all the, all the stuff that I don't do well. He came in and he was just like, here's how we do it. He, we, he got a great uh, second camera operator. He operated a lot of it himself on first camera. And every night just huddling and saying, how can we find, as you said, the, the angles, the framing that's going to, uh, you know, enhance this and, and sort of lift it above anything that feels broadcasty or or just typical. Let's just make it intense is where's our motto. Yeah. Yeah, when you say Bergman for me, when you're talking those terms, I think of uh, Persona 
you know, that there was there was just that intimacy, that that confrontational style that uh, yeah, you're talking about. And I think we could have a whole discussion uh, about um, cinematographers who come from a documentary or if you want to call reality show background. Because especially in the indie world, their ability to be adaptable and to understand that you have one shot to make it happen, that's just such an invaluable skill and really manifests itself in this. I had written a, a, a HBO film called OG that we shot in a maximum security prison. And the, the director had come from the doc world and she brought a doc a DP, Wolfgang Held, who also I, I was just watching him the whole time because, yeah, exactly what you say, his ability to understand these shots are fleeting. Uh, we're we're going to get kicked out of this prison in, in two hours. And let's just make this feel real, but also artistic. And there was much more artistry in that film. There was there was a little more time. And there he, he really does that incredibly well. So we were trying to mimic some of that. I remind our listeners, we're speaking with Stephen Beller, the uh, director and writer of this, this wonderful drama film called What We Do Next. And I want to shift into the actual film and the way it unfolds and the the acting is just superb as you've been saying and absolutely true one of the things that i think for people who see this film and was so fascinating for me to watch is how in each you mentioned maybe six seven different i think you said seven different sort of scenes that we the internal dynamics are constantly shifting the sort of the where the power is coming from in these conversations, who has the upper hand, who doesn't, who is who is maneuvering themselves within these scenes is constantly changing. I found that just to be utterly fascinating. And as I said in our introduction, there's agendas all over the place here, and they play out differently in different parts of the film as they unfold. I, I really can't say this strongly enough. Uh, if you like to watch people have conversations that matter and then watch how it how these great actors can work with this material, this is a film for you. Uh, I, again, what was that tone? You mentioned some other references, but that tone that you wanted to get in this film. You said it really perfectly. I, I'm not really a fan of uh, good or evil characters. Um, you know, obviously everyone is, is flawed. Everyone is for the most part often has good intentions in their life and um and i sometimes worry as a writer that i i am apologizing for people or apologizing for people's actions or i'm trying to have it both ways and i it's i i i question myself about that but i i also really believe that putting two people in this case three people in a room um and they all have their selfish goals and they all have genuinely altruistic goals and i want um and that's an invariably going to be a conflict and conflict is you know the engine here of drama and so i, I remember from when i first wanted to be a player i was like oh putting different people from different backgrounds and different uh, ideologies and value systems in a room together and if you can put uh, an obstacle that they're both grappling towards with uh, you know you're going to you're going to get some com combustibility in a, in a in a good dramatic way and and so i uh, I'm a big, I come from DC. I like politics. I like our city councilwoman in this, her, the character in this. I think her ambitions to be in a, you know, climbing the ladder of New York City politics are, are admirable in a way and well intentioned. She's the person we should want in power. But of course, there's compromises. We see it with every president, the compromises inherent to success or to just even advancing. When, when do those become 
really detrimental to others uh, globally and individually. And so that was the conflict at the center of this and and wanting and I and because there were two women of color characters, I, you know, my portal in as a white guy was the white the sort of do good or white kind of corporate lawyer guy who also has an altruistic bone in his body that but it's conflicted. He's also got a crush on somebody. He's also, you know, there's he, he's a very human being also. And all three of them had to have those various foibles. This is a film also the story and the unfolding of the story. And for me is we're at the very critical points in the film, extremely important points in the film, at least from my perspective, where you mentioned it, the greater good outweighs the, the individual good, or at least it takes precedent. In some ways, it you really, for me, I'm calling into question just how much can institutions bend to the needs of those who are most at need of what they claim to be about? Because in the case of uh, Elsa absolutely. Mercado, that, that is no, you're absolutely right. absolutely right. Go keep going, please. Well, it's, especially in the case of Kelsa, uh, Elsa Mercado, who is the most desperate need of help and the most obvious need of help, and yet life has put her in a position where she is. She's almost. It's hard to say. I don't know. I don't, I'm afraid I'm going to say more than I should, but. She almost be, she becomes something that must be sacrificed on the altar of the greater good. It's really yeah. No, you hit it on the head because I know that she also comes off as manipulative at times, and um, she's she's a deeply flawed person. She's she's desperate, and we we, we really tried hard, I think, uh, really in the editing bay also to make sure that desperation came across more <laughs> than the than than the manipulative aspect of her because I think it's easy for us with privilege or us who are not coming out of prison uh, with the trauma of her past to sort of like chalk people up to like, oh, well, she shouldn't have done that. She, she, that came off as me. And it's, and if we need to understand, you know, obviously what the trauma does and what the position of coming out of, of being entangled with the criminal justice system in this country does to you and where it drives you so that her needs, because they, they are coming with a, an edge and they're coming with a desperation they are sacrificial or they're up for being sacrificed by the end of this thing. And it's really sad because it would helping her requires Sandy, the, the city councilwoman to bend, if not break rules. And we don't want our law, our, our politicians to do that. And when you present that in a, in a hopefully nuanced way, but really subtle where that decision, you could almost get away with it. If to help this woman in need, you could almost get away with it, but you also would be, uh, trespassing upon, uh, you know, your your sworn oath. Well, and one other thing about that is, people who have been traumatized, certainly in the ways that Elsa has been traumatized, in order to survive, they must develop a sense of guile. They must develop a sense of survival. They must. It's not a. It's not an option. So everything that she's doing is completely in line with her greater good with what she has to do. Has she made some bad choices? People who are traumatized continue to make bad choices. That is unfortunately a byproduct of trauma. They just do. And a byproduct of the system. You're in, if you're in prison for 16 years, you do need guile. You need, and those are the, your defenses. You need manipulation. You need to be really savvy and sly and you need to, to, to do what it takes. And she's doing what it takes and that doesn't play as well in the world. And it is a, 
but it is in, enhanced by, uh, you know, the criminal justice system. And I, you know, and then talking to a lot of and interviewing a lot of prisoners, working with prisoners over the years, you know, it's it's the first thing you hear uh, is how hard it is to sort of uh, take that set of skills you develop in there. And it's not even the, the fault of the system. The system is overwhelmed. Uh, it could be better, but it's, you know, it's not that there are bad people. It's, it's the system. Well, it causes me in watching the film to figure out, is there a way to thread that needle? Is is there another sort of um, adjunct to our criminal justice system and our and our supposed health care, mental health care of people? Is there a way that is there a way? And I mean, I'm, I'm not suggesting that anyone, especially in the film, should have the answers to this, but it forces you to think about these things. And also, you're right. Um Sandy James, Karen Pittman's character, is a wonderful person, and who's it, there's just un, unanswerable questions in this film. They're just are they're just presented in such a way that make you have to think about it. Uh, that makes me happy to hear, and it makes me sad too because you're right. There are you know there's the let's abolish prisons. There's the let's do the European model or Scandinavian model of prisons, and then there are more applicable ones, e more easily applicable here in the states, which is. It is programs and it is it is counseling for mental health and it is dealing with trauma on a deeper level than just having access to the chapel uh, in prison. So and, and they cost money, but they're not completely prohibitive financially. And I think that, that that's kind of where the answer at least starts. Right. Stephen Belbert, thank you for, again, what we do next. It is opening in uh, all over the country today, Friday, March 3rd. Uh, you want to be looking for this if you're in L.A., San Francisco, New York, Detroit, did you mention? I think he's in uh, Memphis, Phoenix. Uh, okay, all over. All over the place, yeah. Be looking for it. And again, just superb acting, wonderful look to it. And uh, um, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us. Thanks for coming back to Film School Radio, Stephen Belber. Thank you. It's an honor. Thanks so much, Mike. Great to see you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.